0: We gotta ask like, Do you drink coffee Or do you like to Suck on the beans
1: Oh Okay I I suppose That would be true All right, all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode one. 148 of the SLS cast yes ladies and gentlemen this is the GTL Cobra episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that Global Star Telecommunications Limited or GTL has a 120 channel CB radio called the Cobra 148 and with that little bit of c b knowledge, I of course am Matt, and coming to us all the way from California would be none other than our resident Sony employee
0: Tim be thy name,
1: no, Tim is thy name.
0: wait what's wrong with be thy name
1: because you're telling me that my name is Tim
0: Well, don't have to be a smart ass about it, Matthew, Matthew, <laughs> be thy name. I always thought thy was my. No, really?
1: Thy is you. Well, that, Forever, that would explain all the red marks thine. in
0: in English class. In British literature class. <laughs> I've I've gotten it wrong the entire time. Or British linguistics class, I guess. That
1: nope. I'm actually doing later Britter later Britter? Later British Masterworks at the moment. That's one of my English courses this semester. Ooh, before.
0: what are you studying? What are you reading?
1: Anything exciting? Just some, you know later british masterworks like what i mean do you have any examples of later british we're doing romantics right now we're covering the romantic period of poetry so we're doing things you know like keats and wordsworth and whatnot
0: you know that's like the the definition of romantic or or of romance right there i'm doing the early british works of romantic poetry is that how you woo your wife like is your wife well she hates poetry she hates poetry she hates. So, do you like at, at nighttime? Do you like go into go into the bed and snuggle up next door and just whisper poetry into her ear, just so I she do? Gets pissed I off? do.
1: It's along the lines of one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, but I mean, she eats it up.
0: Goldfish, one fish, two fish, three fish, goldfish, eat it up. No, but... one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish.
1: It's a Dr. Seuss. Book. I, okay, Seriously?
0: so you're not taking. <laughs> <laughs> a British romantic poetry class. You're taking the poetry of Dr. Seuss. That doesn't count. Are you? I mean, I thought you were going to a university now, not community college.
1: What, I thought Theodore Geisel was British. No? Damn it. <laughs> we're so close. Oh, yes. Well, it is officially fall now.
0: It is the autumn season. Uh, in fact, I think the first day of autumn was already upon us last year during the recording Run. of last show i th- i
1: think uh, i thought it was the 21st was the was the fall solstice was it
0: yeah that was a week ago right a weekish ago before um, or was that 2
1: weeks before... ago yeah i guess that was a week no it had to have been 2 weeks ago cuz we're on the 5th of october now well i mean honestly let's face it so yes yeah, 2 weeks ago
0: autumn or fall doesn't really happen until october 1st I mean, it it doesn't happen any time before then, because at least in L.A., once October hits, the weather changes, and right now we have the nice, crisp—well, not necessarily crisp, but just that fall, nice feel in the air. There was, like, that transition period of the smog didn't know really where to go. You know, the ozone was flaring up a bit. Should we stay? Should we go? The weather was a little bipolar, I should say, but— Finally, it is the, the crisp
1: apple scent is upon us. Apple scent. You, no, no, no. That that's called pumpkin spice.
0: Well, I mean, well, okay. Pumpkin spice was so 2013. <laughs> and now it's all about apple cinnamon.
1: <laughs> Let me tell you. It, it's still about 2015. Are you into the PSL's? I am not. I I I enjoy the smell of pumpkin pie on thanksgiving but outside of that don't care
0: are you a coffee man do you drink coffee no do you drink coffee with liquor in it no are you one of those people that that can like caffeinate themselves just by looking at yourself in the mirror like does that give you get you like pumped up for the day
1: I am Matt, and I am ready <laughs> for this day, goddammit. Honestly, honestly, it's I am really, really weird when it comes to coffee. I do love dark chocolate-covered espresso beans, and I thoroughly enjoy the smell of just about any kind of coffee. Thoroughly enjoy the smell of it, and don't mind, like, a tiramisu or anything like that. But when it comes to actually consuming coffee, I can't do it. I don't, it just does not taste good. It, it is just, I don't know what is wrong with my brain that it smells great, but it tastes like shit. So I subsequently have never done the coffee thing and consequently am not addicted to caffeine. So on the rare occasion that I do need some caffeine, I can suck down a couple of Mountain Dews back to back and wake me up a bit but i will say that on on a rare occasion i can do uh, the iced white chocolate mocha at starbucks because that's just kind of like a coffee flavored chocolate milk <laughs> that, that doesn't so count I, I know that's what i'm saying so
0: you know but it works though like like the it, like you know, the chocolate covered more. espresso beans those don't count anything that's cased in chocolate does not count but I guess you're not you're not going for counting that as as coffee. Like people out here. Uh, I ran to somebody in the elevator at the mall. And they were talking about coffee. And I couldn't help but hearing one person saying, Oh man, I love coffee so much. It's like, okay, well, I mean, what kind of coffee do you drink? Black coffee? Do you do a little whole milk in it? Skim milk, some cream, or what no, 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 I don't do any of that. I like to eat the beans i mean with with chocolate like chocolate covered coffee beans or espresso beans no no, no, I like to go and buy full beans and spend the entire day at the office or wherever just sucking on beans sucking on coffee beans i don't understand how that could be more gratifying than just drinking that cup of joe why do you have to why do you have to chew on that bean i I don't get that
1: I just have chocolate covered espresso beans every once in a while. Yeah, well, at least you're not a douche about it, about it, so that's good. <laughs> I don't know about the sucking on the beans or anything like that. I just, you know, every once in a while, get something. So we got to ask, like, yeah. do
0: you drink coffee or do you like to suck on the beans?
1: Be a big negatory good buddy. <laughs> so how's the weather in Houston? Is it still summer? Actually, it has uh, cooled off over the weekend. I was enjoying uh, some beer out on the patio on Saturday evening. And we were grilling burgers and dogs. I have some nice sirloin burgers, and we were grilling those out. Uh, it was 63 degrees outside Wow. when we were doing that. Nice. So it's been very pleasant yeah. over the last few days, and I look forward to it remaining pleasant for perhaps another week, and then it'll get this weird cold thing going on, and then it'll just get hot again. Yeah, we got the 70s going this week until Friday when it
0: spikes up to ninety. Which is kind of a good thing, because yesterday, Sunday, was the first day when it started really getting cool. And you go out and you talk to the really bitchy people that work at the front desk of anywhere, really. And they they always, those people always hate the cold out here. It's 75 degrees, and they're complaining about it being way too cold. Or maybe it was more like 69, since it was like 7 o'clock in the morning. I don't understand it.
1: Oh. I uh, I guess. Do you want to go ahead? We don't have any email or news of the weird that I'm aware of. So, do you want to go ahead and get to the regular news?
0: Yes, let's do it.
1: All right, folks, here we go. It's the news. Hey. first up from me from GQ.com, by way of Nicole Silverberg, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's tightrope movie, The Walk, is literally making audiences throw up. She writes, oh boy, oh boy, do I love a good movie. I love getting a box of hot tamales, a big bucket of popcorn, and surrendering myself to the power of film. "'But my absolute favorite part about going to the movies is not throwing up. "'Love a good non-vomit experience, and that's what movies are all about until now.'" She continues, "'The Walk' retells the story of Philippe Petit, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, "'and his infamous 1974 tightrope walk between the Twin Towers.'" In the press screening, numerous reviewers were experiencing vertigo. Turns out a 3D 20-minute tightrope scene set 1,362 feet above the ground is triggering some serious nausea. (sighs) And it uh, quotes a tweet here from Mark Harris. Reports of guys vomiting in the Alice (laughs) Dolly men's room post the walk. True. Witnessed it slash came close bad visual trigger for vertigo sufferers the article closes with with several people describing feelings of dizziness queasiness and extreme anxiety director robert zemeckis probably feels thrilled quote the goal was to evoke the feeling of vertigo we worked really hard to put the audience up on those towers and on the wire And quote so tim i understand that you May or may not have seen this film and are encouraging me to try and get sick is this is this true I'm sorry you had i I
0: wasn't paying attention because I am still perplexed by this woman bringing tamales into a movie theater i don't understand that I've heard of people bringing pickles in the movie theater, but not tamales uh but yes, no i I got to
1: see it at a seriously like you've never seen hot tamales candy? Oh, so not hot, like, Mexican tamales. They're like Mike and Ikes, except they are just... I know
0: what those are. Just I thought thought you were talking about, like,
1: tamales. A box of
0: hot tamales. Okay, well, I thought you were talking about tamales tamales. (laughs) Like, because normally, I mean, good tamales, they're hot. So, I mean, it's like...
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Right on. Uh,
0: But yes, you know, I've seen it. And if you were going to see this movie... It is worth paying the money to go and see it on a big screen and in 3D. It's a fine movie. It's different. What makes it, uh, it charming is that it's not a $100 million budgeted film. They made it for, I think, like $33 million bucks. But it feels bigger, and it, it's well done, especially Joseph Gordon-Levitt's in it. And I can totally see how people are vomiting. I mean, it's definitely triggering the vertigo feeling and whatnot, so... It's it's pretty cool. So, uh Matt, bring your bring your chuck bucket if you need to. <laughs> and your tamales. <laughs> so,
1: so, so, sounds like a challenge. If there if there is time, then it will be challenge accepted. All right, sir, what do you got?
0: Alright, from deadlinehollywood.com, and yes, folks, my computer is working this episode. Lost in Hong Kong, which is the film title. Rises to 167 million plus dollars after only seven days in China, international box office. This is written by Anita Bush again from Deadline.com. After a record breaking box office weekend in China, the Zhengzhou comedy Lost in Hong Kong is heading into this box office weekend already logging in with a whopping 167 million dollars after only seven days in release. It was the highest ever opening of a Chinese film with $170 million over the weekend. The blockbuster about a man who becomes involved in a murder investigation while on a sightseeing trip in Hong Kong with his wife and brother-in-law grossed almost $20 million just yesterday. Yesterday being October 1st, So it uh, grossed almost $20 million on October 1st alone, and it is also in some theaters stateside here in the U.S. In only 26 locations, Lost in Hong Kong has a cumulative total of $743,000 domestically. The film is a sequel of sorts to the same director's 2012 hit comedy Lost in Thailand, which ended up grossing $197.8 million worldwide with almost 100% coming from international box office receipts. The film's performance in China was benefited by the fact that it starred local box office draw Vicky Zhao, and the country has been celebrating National Day this past week, a time when school and businesses are closed. Last weekend, it trampled over all domestic players in the marketplace, including Mission Impossible, Minions, and Pixels, to take the box office crown. In uh, the article goes on a little bit, from there talking about Terminator Genesis. Uh, side note: Terminator Genesis has currently made $440 million worldwide. $113 million of that is from the Chinese box office, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, most importantly though, loss in Hong Kong. $167 plus million dollars during a seven-day period in China. This is huge. This is why the US Hollywood films are trying to get into the Asian market. That's why we're you're seeing a lot of movies that are incorporating Chinese locations and Chinese actors who are well known over in Asia or over in China. Because people in China, they flock to this stuff when it's coming from their own country and this goes to show. And This has happened a couple times already this year in China. There was another monster movie that came out, I think, in February or March. I forget what it was called. But it was huge over there. So the potential for making a lot of money in China is grand. And a lot of studios are trying to figure out the right way to tap in to that market. Though, as you've seen with some Marvel movies, and especially Transformers and Godzilla, of course... They're already starting to do that, but man, 167 plus million dollars only after seven days. That's pretty impressive. Matt, any comments or questions or concerns with that?
1: No, that's a pretty interesting article. I gotta I gotta say. And so I will now say this. <laughs> My last piece of news. Comes to us from Yahoo Movies dot uh Yahoo Movies, which is basically yahoo.com slash movies. Uh they are basically sourcing the Hollywood reporter for this, and it is accordingly by THR staff. On live with Kelly and Michael. Uh, let's see here. Ch-ch-ch-ch a maze runner, the Scorch Trial star, Dylan O'Brien admitted that he and other actors stole artifacts from an ancient Indian burial ground while filming in Albuquerque. You heard that right, folks. (laughs) We've got people admitting to stealing stealing Indian burial uh, artifacts here. Basically, what's up is Dylan O'Brien is on live with Kelly and Michael. They they're talking about the experiences of filming and oh you know because you know, the movie's about to come out and blah 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 and they're talking about how they got to film. Dylan's referring relating the story of how how they got to film in Albuquerque area in the Albuquerque area in this uh ancient burial ground and they've like they've never been no one's ever been allowed to film here before and so they're like okay fine we'll go ahead and give you permission to film here these are uh, pueblo indians and they're like but you know don't take anything from the site so he immediately turns around so of course we took all this stuff from the site everybody took stuff from the site the director took stuff from the site they have a video here uh from kelly and michael that you can watch but let's just sum it up right here Quote, it hadn't been used for filming ever before. They gave us this big speech when we got here to shoot, and they said, don't take anything, respect the grounds. They were very strict about littering, and don't take any artifacts like rocks, skulls, anything like that. And everyone just takes stuff, you know, obviously, And quote. (laughs) He then went on to mention that five actors fell ill within one week of leaving the site, jokingly alluding to the idea of a Native American curse had punished them for it, there is currently a petition at uh care two uh it's a it's called, it's just a care to uh petition it's demanding that Dylan O'Brien, director Westball, and other cast members apologize for disrespecting the Pueblo community and to please return whatever they stole. <laughs> um, in the world of how fucking obvious do you need to be if you're gonna do something retarded like that <laughs> not to tell about it on <laughs> national television <laughs> what, do you, what do you think Tim <laughs> at this point I'm just glad I never read any of these books and I didn't watch the first Maze Runner movie either
0: yeah these, uh, god I hope they get in trouble <laughs> I mean, this is absolutely stupid. These guys are morons and assholes. I don't know. It just goes to show how, how stupid Hollywood can be, like with the type of people that they hire. Because it's kind of amazing how this isn't a bigger thing. Like, I haven't heard of it at all until just now talking to you. So I think, I think whenever I... they return it, they should take part in whatever punishment that that tribe practiced hundreds of years ago. And that might include like getting their hands chopped off. I would actually pay to watch that. I would I would donate to that Kickstarter. Actually,
1: <laughs> that ought to make the last movie really interesting. <laughs> New breakthroughs in CGI of hands <laughs> for everybody. Uh, for everybody. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that is my news. So go ahead and bring us home, there, sir.
0: From EntertainmentWeekly.com, Matt's second favorite website. Steven Soderbergh's Mysterious HBO Movie to Require New Emmy Category. This is written by James Hibbard, and it says this. Steven Soderbergh is working on an ultra-mysterious HBO movie that may let viewers use an app to determine the course of the film's storyline. For weeks, we've been pestering HBO to confirm what we've been hearing about as a hush-hush project called Mosaic. We know for a fact that the film is from Soderbergh, the Ocean's Eleven filmmaker and producer of Cinemax's The Nick. We've heard Sharon Stone will star. Most intriguingly, though, we've heard that the film will have multiple endings, with the viewer determining which outcome will be shown via an app. Those latter two elements have not been confirmed or denied, but HBO broke its silence to Entertainment Weekly on the project Thursday with a rather intriguing statement from Soderbergh. Quote, I believe the good people at HBO are genuinely enthusiastic about Mosaic for two reasons. First, it represents a fresh way of experiencing a story and sharing that experience with others. Second, it will require a new Emmy category and we will be the only eligible nominee. Presumably, the new Emmy category Soderbergh references would be for the choose-your-own-adventure-style interactive component of the film, though whether the TV Academy agrees they need to create a new category, one on which only Mosaic could win, no less, remains to be seen. And will TV fans really want to go to their phones to swipe right for a happy ending? End all quotes. Matt, are you a TV fan who will want to go to your phone to swipe right for a happy ending?
1: (laughs) Um, Is it it wrong that all I can think of are masturbation jokes right now? (laughs) Um. Like... Swiping right for a happy ending? I mean, <laughs> oh. there's just so much potential for masturbation jokes there. Well, I mean, you don't have to use. I sh- don't even know where to begin. Yeah. I'm like a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't actually know what to do if I caught one. <laughs> um, but okay, to quote from uh, the Joker and Dark Knight, uh, um, no. To answer the question. In all seriousness, no. Mainly because as a cord cutter, I don't watch live TV. So this has no... It doesn't have any real draw for me. And even if it is set up for programming that, for example, like Netflix would do it. And then go, oh, so the cliffhanger is at the end of the season. And you choose which way we go with the cliffhanger. Uh, No, because by the time a resolution were to come however much longer it would be, or even if it was over the season break or something and, and they're like, Oh, well, even if you T voted or whatever, um, the thrill would be gone. So, yeah, no, I don't, I would not do it. I don't see this as a viable thing.
0: Yeah. If, all. if it's relying on people watching it live, then, ah, I, I yeah. Cause I'm a cord cutter as well. It's that, I mean, that in itself sounds like in uh, like an abortion joke. <laughs> but i i don't even know if that's even a category of jokes but anyways I, yeah i just don't see as well how that how, how that can work because like with everything on hbo do people like whatever like game of thrones comes on i don't know i don't fucking watch it like on saturday nights are people like shit it's eight o'clock we gotta cancel all of our dinner plans schedule nothing at 8 p.m so we could watch Game of Thrones. And I'm not saying that there's... I'm sure there are people that do that. There for is sure.
1: a, quite a large... We'll see, that's just it, though. For, like, the super-duper amazing major shows, I would say probably, let's just say the top 30 shows, I would say yes, there is probably enough of a dedicated following that does watch it as it airs that it might make some kind of an impact, but the simple fact of the matter is is that even people uh, who get HBO Go or will be subscribing to HBO Online, which I think is now finally available for the entire public and not just limited to iTunes, Mm -hmm. because, actually, I need to get that. I forgot I was supposed to get that. Um, (laughs) Then there might be some, but it's not going to be enough of, to make up for the difference for the people who are going to be like those who do it on HBO Go or do it on because yeah it just yeah I don't see it I don't see it happening and I mean and I literally have been uh, we cut the cord <sighs> it, it I want to say a little over eight years ago ooh you you were the pioneer
0: mm-hmm. you pioneered the cutting of the cords. So when so whenever 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 they make they write books whenever books comes out about or maybe a book comes out about cord cutting, you took
1: part in like the first chapter. I I did. That's actually kind of cool to say that you were literally part of a revolution. But is it in the way people really? experience entertainment. That's kind of cool. I, I think cutting cords in this
0: day of age is kind of like the obvious thing, you know, with how fucking expensive it is when you can just pay 30 bucks for internet and well for me it's 80 bucks Ah, but
1: they're getting you now too. comp see good companies like comcast now have introduced a 300 gigabyte cap and for every x amount of gig you go over something like 20 or 50 that you go over in your data usage they're charging you ten dollars a month and so you could theoretically go over 30 40 50 60 to 70 a month. Uh, I think they said they were going to cap it at like 50 bucks or something. But they're now saying, "Oh, but we'll we'll just charge you $30 a month more and then now you're unlimited again. But if you don't go over your 300 gigabyte, we're not refunding you th- your $30." So they're already doing it because as people cut the cord more, they're just going to rely on the internet more. So they're just going to charge more for the internet.
0: I'm just fucked anyway. I mean, I, I, we pay eighty-five bucks a month for internet because Time Warner
1: Cable has a monopoly over here. But I, mm. I digress. No, they don't. They, they don't. No, there is no monopoly. They just happen to have regional non-compete contracts worked out. See, they're sharing the marketplace, Tim fucking ass yeah they could anyway. suck
0: my dick they could suck <laughs> you, know what, you
1: know what they can they can swipe right for a happy ending <laughs> swipe right for go fuck yourself
0: <laughs> well i guess lastly uh this is something that i really wanted to talk about last week from geek.com yes believe it or not well i guess you shouldn't believe it or not because it's obvious that there would be a geek.com Ridley Scott's Prometheus sequel, now known as Alien, Paradise Lost. This is written by T.J. Deetsch. This is from September 28th. Ridley Scott does not plan on slowing down anytime soon. The 77-year-old director has been releasing one film a year since 2012's Prometheus. Two in 2013, counting both The Counselor and the TV movie The Vatican, continues to discuss future projects along the way. With The Martian ready or already hit theaters this past weekend, he's already talking about his next project, the sequel to Prometheus, which he recently revealed to be titled Alien Paradise Lost. The title takes its name from John Milton's epic poems about Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden paradise of Eden after Satan pulled some nasty tricks on them. Comparisons between the prime humans' overreaching Eating the forbidden fruit ties into the Greek myth of Prometheus stealing fire from the gods and, of course, the overarching themes of this franchise, which basically imply that poking our noses all around space only leads to death and destruction. But how does all that tie into the continuing space drama being told by Scott? Quote, I'm sure you've never been through it. The Poems of Book, Paradise Lost, end quote, he said to the interviewer. Quote, it sounds intellectual, but there is a similarity to it. That's where it stops, end quote. In another interview, Scott expanded on that explanation. Quote, we're heading back to where and how and why the beast was invented. We'll go back into the back door, the very first alien that I did 30 years ago, end quote. Scott also recently stated that he wants to keep playing in the pre-Alien sandbox with possibly four films total. He explained that he saw the Xenomorphs themselves as a piece of biological warfare and that those sequels will continue to explain how they went from the thing seen in Prometheus to the ones seen in Alien. End all quotes. And a couple things that I read in other articles a week ago, so I apologize if... I mean, you might want to do a little fact-checking, listener. I think he's supposed to, they're supposed to start shooting this early 2016-ish, and it's supposed to have some ties. I think the first one here is supposed to have some ties to the character of uh, of Ripley. So, yeah, uh, that's something to be excited for. I know, Matt, you and I both were excited and pleased with Prometheus. Are you ready for Prometheus 2? I mean, I, I forget if you thought that uh, this was a thing that absolutely had to happen, or if you were just meh about the possibility or not.
1: Um, no, no. I, I, Yeah, I've been waiting for the sequel to Prometheus since I was walking out of the theater talking about how amazing it was with my dad on the way to the car in the parking lot. That That's how long I've been waiting. And I am very excited about having it at all. And I think it's really cool because... While it is not considered a later British masterwork, we often refer to it in the British masterworks class, and so I, I think it's very—I think it is very telling where, at least where some of the themes of the movie are going to be coming from with a title like P- uh, Paradise Lost. So yeah, cool. And that's my news. Right on. All right. Well, then I believe. It's now time for Did It Age Well? Did it age well? We're gonna find out now If it aged well over 20 years Or more
0: Or more? Slip right with your penis to find out If Monster Squad (laughs) aged well or not
1: what happened yeah, to all their you. careers, <laughs> I don't we're gonna, know. We're going to wait till you swipe right <laughs> for the happy ending. <laughs> uh, all right, well, let's see here. So for those not already in the know, The Monster Squad is a 1987 horror comedy film. It's written by Shane Black and Fred uh, Decker and directed by Decker. Uh, it stars Andre Gower, Duncan Rieger, Stephen Macht, Stan Shaw, and Tom Noonan. Let's see here. This is basically a group of kids. These are uh, preteens that idolize classic monsters, monster movies. They hold meetings in a clubhouse, and they call themselves the Monster Squad. They have uh, uh, the club leader is this kid named Sean. He's got a little kid sister named Phoebe who's always trying to join the club. And he finds himself in the possession of Van Helsing's. Legendary Monster Hunter diary. Unfortunately for him, it's in German. So now the quest begins to, to, to basically translate this diary and find out all of the hidden secrets. And it's convenient for them that there's the mean old German man in the neighborhood who is very familiar with monsters because that's it and then as he says that he's very familiar with monsters the camera conveniently pans out and his arm extends and you can see uh concentration camp numbers tattooed onto his arm Uh, so you can see what they were doing there and over time it comes out that basically there is this amulet and van helsing had been uh uh trying to contain this amulet and use its power to forever, store, forever get rid of Dracula and all of his minions and everything. So you've got Dracula, you've got Gilman, who's basically supposed to be creature of the Black Lagoon. We've got uh, uh, the Wolfman, who has this, who has a kind of an interesting du- duality in his role, because he's the Wolfman, but then when he's not in Wolfman form, he's got kind of a different opinion of what's going on and then of course we have frankenstein's monster um dracula of course also manages to get get himself some uh groupies and the idea here is that there is this Amulet, it's an amulet is the balance between good and evil, or it's it's the concentrated power of good and has the power to open the door to limbo or to hell or some zone or whatever, and they're gonna get all the monsters into the zone or limbo or whatever the shit it is. They now Dracula, of course, wants it for his own nefarious purposes to destroy it or so he can take over the world. And now it's up to the Monster Squad to do something about it. That's more or less the movie in a nutshell. Now, this movie was rated PG-13. And as one of the pioneers in PG-13, it's not for kids. This is, this is basically Goonies trying to be... It's like the Halloween version of Goonies, if you will, using Universal Monsters. And they're trying to establish this as a great teenage flick to actually get the kids between 13 and 17 to go to the movies and have a good time. PG-13's not about that anymore. PG-13's now the new PG, with a couple of strong words thrown in so that adults feel like it's not a kid's movie. Unfortunately... That's where the coolness of this movie ends, for me. The concept was pretty cool. And quite frankly, I almost wish they had just decided to... uh, As much as I hate remakes, if you're trying to reintroduce the Universal Monsters, this might have actually been a better way to try and reintroduce it. Because we're about 30 years out from this movie, at this point. And you might have a better shot of trying to revamp this film to reintroduce characters that you could spin off and do other things with.
0: But the problem with that is that this was a TriStar movie, not a Universal movie.
1: Yeah, but Tri- uh, TriStar is defunct. Nope. No, it's not. No, no, it's not. Because it's part of Columbia, so it's part of Sony.
0: Yeah, and TriStar put out uh, The Walk.
1: They put out The Walk? Huh? The
0: Walk. The Men on Wire movie.
1: Oh, because that's related to this.
0: They were wanting to make a movie uh, sent up to the classic Universal Monsters, but they couldn't really use the Universal Monsters because there was a legal issue because the movie, it wasn't made by Universal or Universal didn't have any issue with it. So I think that's kind of why maybe Universal can't do a fun version of this, which actually would be kind of cool. So I agree with you in on that. In the
1: world, but in today's world, where we can get Sony and Marvel... To share Spider-Man? I am pretty darn sure we could get Universal and Sony to uh work out something with some defunct horror characters from the 30s. I mean, I I feel strongly that that this could be worked out if they wanted to. <laughs> um and, and it yet remains to be seen. But at any rate, I I I'm kinda jumping off the track here. The thing is, is just the effects the everything, everything that made this movie cool and, uh, and and worthwhile for the cult developing that it uh, developed, because it did not do well at the box office of the day. I remember catching this on HBO, I want to say when I was about 12 or so, so that would be about 1989-ish in the, in, in the world. And the things that made it worthwhile then don't just simply don't apply anymore and so you can't pass it down to the next generation and quite frankly the ki- like I would not be comfortable showing this to my 8-year-old even though it's not quote unquote scary like things could have been back then because kids are advanced there's just a lot of there's just a lot of teen subject matter that my daughter's not ready for so by and by the time she gets old enough to handle that material She's not going to care about the, the premise of the movie. And that's why I say this movie does not age well. Special effects are only okay. Makeup's not bad. The story in and of itself, goonie as I already referred to, not as good as the Goonies. And so I can see why it's developed a cult following, because, again, I watched it when I was 12, and I thought it was pretty cool then. But I cannot say that this film has aged well. And I don't think it would really find a home in today's youth generation. So no, this movie has not h well. Go ahead, Tim. What do you got?
0: Yeah, so like what I uh, like uh, what we were talking about just a second ago—that this was a TriStar movie, and this was TriStar sent up to the classic Universal monsters, but they couldn't. Legal-wise, for legal reasons, obviously, they couldn't model the characters after the classic Universal Monsters. They brought Stan Winston in to come in and do the monster effects. And, of course, for those of you who knows anything or who know anything about movie makeup, you definitely know or at least are familiar with the name of Stan Winston. He's done some of the best work in movies over uh, for the past like, 30, 35 years or so. And so he was brought in, and what the great thing about Stan Winston is that he loves the classic Universal monster movies. When he was a kid, you can all, all, every interview that he that he does when he talks about what influenced him is the Wolfman, for example. He always wanted to do the Wolfman makeup and the Wolfman costume, and I think that was one of the first costumes that he did. Uh, I might be wrong, but it seems like I remember that's sticking out in my mind from an interview for some reason. So he's very much into the classic monsters. So I'm sure when he got the offer to come in, he was very jazzed about it. Like, yes, I have to do... I, the Wolfman, the creature from the Black Lagoon. And then he's probably reading the script and like, oh, shit. Gilman. Damn it. So how am I going to make these creatures look... N- not necessarily look exactly like the classic Universal Monsters but how can i make them like like make them reminiscent of those characters and so this is pretty much what he did is what you see on the screen everybody looks pretty much the same other than the wolfman and frankenstein has a little bit of has a little bit of changes but there's i mean a lot of the film especially everything that pertains to uh, the frankenstein's monster's character like with the little girl and whatnot by the pond a lot of that is ripped out of the old nineteen thirties Universal movies. So it was kind of interesting, and I, I that's one thing that I really enjoyed in this movie, is seeing the love and the compassion towards these characters and the whole mythology and whatnot put into this one big kind of mega mashup type of movie. And I thought the the overall story, you know, what, what the characters were fighting for or fighting over. Made sense, and it was fun. It was something goofy and over-the-top uh, on paper, you know, or, or, or in theory, you know, just talking about it. It's fun to think about, and it's over-the-top, and it just makes for a good story. I do, too, agree this would be an awesome remake, and, in fact, up until, I think, two or three years ago, they were supposed to remake it. It didn't happen for whatever reason. It could have been legal issues with Universal. But what really detracts from the fun And that passion is all the other stuff that this movie is made up of. I like the kids. I like the dynamic between the kids. It's kind of like your run-of-the-mill, you know, young kid adventure movie from the 80s. You have the fat kid. You have the nerdy, geeky kid. You have the tough, good-looking, you know, leather jacket-wearing kid. I mean, it's pretty much like the Goonies. And so it works for the most part, but it's the language. It's the having to be PG-13 what was this movie trying to accomplish? That's the thing. I think adults going into this movie could have, would have, I mean, I, at least me going to this movie now, I would have been a little weird, a little bit put off watching this movie. Because I wasn't exactly sure what they were trying to go for. And it's not that like every once in a while the kids will say, damn or hell. No, some of the subject matter is pretty racy. And it's, and it's kind of, it's a little off-putting. Most of the time it's really funny. But once the charm comes out, the hard work and the passion, and the love come through the movie. You just wonder, like, what producer got their hands on this film and thought, you know, we need to racy it up a bit. You know, I, I think I think this movie would appeal to 30, 40 year olds. So let's 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 have it with kids doing. I mean, if this movie was made now with not necessarily the same script but with the same idea of like okay let's make a fun fantasy monster movie but let's make the dialogue a little coarse well it'll it would probably be a Seth Rogen movie seeing it being a tri-star sony movie it would probably be a Seth Rogen movie but it's with kids and it just doesn't work for today so in that regard i believe monster squad Did not age well. It bugs me to say that because the movie, I mean, I enjoyed watching it. It just wouldn't work now. So, yes, Monster Squad does not age or did not age well at all.
1: So by yes, Monster Squad did not age well, you're saying no, it didn't age well? Yes,
0: it did not age well.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, next week we're going to be doing uh, a new entry in our latest bonus segment, Was It Worthy? Uh, We're actually going to be looking at Rosemary's Baby from 1968. It actually won Best Supporting Actress and Best Adapted Screenplay at the 41st Academy Awards. So we're going to take a look at that flick and see if we believe it earned those Academy Awards. Yay. And I guess without any further ado... The movies. <laughs> and we actually have four movies this week, though. We have A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, or sometimes known as just Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Child. Kind of interchangeable there. And then Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. We also have, of course, fresh in the theaters, The Martian. So where would you like to start there, Tim? Why don't we start on a high note before we
0: we make ourselves throw up going through (laughs) uh, the last three, or these three Freddy Krueger movies. (laughs)
1: <laughs> fair enough all right let's see here so then i guess we're going to be starting with freddy's dead the final nightmare no i'm just kidding all right uh, the martian 2015 american science fiction film, directed by ridley scott and stars matt damon it is also based on andy weir's 2011 novel the martian so, let's the total stars, though we've got Matt Damon, Jessica Chastain, Kristen Wiig, Jeff Daniels, Michael Pena, Kate Mara, Sean Bean, Sebastian Stan, uh, Axel Henny, Chiwetel uh, Ijafor, and Donald Glover. This movie is basically about a. It's the Ares Three mission to Mars. It's supposed to be the Ares Three manned mission to Mars, and it is going seemingly well. When a scheduled storm comes in, but is much more severe than what they believed it would be. There is an accident during the evacuation, and Matt Damon finds himself stranded on Mars. The story then goes from there to his survival and bringing him home. I would like to say that I have not given a lot of five-star movie reviews this year. And contrary uh, from last year. And I haven't really given a lot of four-star movie reviews this year either. And I'm I'm going to let you know what this is going to be at the end because I'm uh, I'm I'm in the last last final decision of where I'm going to land on this movie. But this is probably one of the best if not the best films i have seen this year thus far and the reason for that is storytelling it's not just about watch it's it's not just like watching castaway you have the benefit of watching someone who is incredibly smart work through things you also have The benefit of seeing just exactly in very real form there are only two issues scientifically with this film so what you're going to be watching is really really darn true to life overall Uh, in, in terms of how nasa behaves in terms of what would actually be experienced for people on mars and for the most part, there, like I said, there are two things, but they're really more along the lines of issues for the movie and do not take away from the overall scientific effect that you would find. The focus that they put on Matt Damon is very well done, and Matt Damon definitely does a wonderful job of carrying the bulk of the film. However, they were very, very smart... With their use of supporting cast and how they split the supporting cast and how they actually kind of tiered the supporting cast. Because you have the supporting cast of the people who are the crew, you have the supporting cast of the people who are with NASA, and then from there, you also they tear it down a little bit so that you can actually get in with uh, JPL as well. And for those of you who are not familiar, that would be Jet Propulsion Laboratory. They're based out of California. On top of that, they have also done a very good job in terms of bringing the international audience to the fore. Because while NASA is definitely based out of the United States, and this is primarily a U.S. mission, they make no bones about the input that other countries have in our current space program both on missions and on support the way that scott has has told the story and how he blends really good uses of dramatic tension with sprinkled action and not overly done with no redundancies in performances by that supporting cast especially at the tiered level really goes to show just exactly how creative and talented that he is as a director for being able to pull this thing together casting decisions were also very very well done overall. It's so funny that you see Michael Peña in this char- in this role and it's really just kind of a low-key version of the role he played in Ant-Man. <laughs> um and yet it's very well executed. It's like he it's like he was properly instructed on how to rein that in. Also taking a look at uh Kristen Wiig in her performance, I think she should just do this kind of stuff from now on. I think she's much better suited personally to the dramatic level with just a touch of ironic humor than she is suited for full-on comedy. And that's and, and I'm not trying to say she's not talented in comedy. I just think this is much better suited for her range and she could do so many good things coming out of this. At the end of the day, the one true issue for me is the music and this is really the only nitpick that would affect the score of the of, of my rating they use a very feeble plot device to do nothing but have 70s disco hits primarily used in this film for the music. Now, on one hand, they're trying to limit the time that they're trying to limit the pop culture for when this movie takes place so that you could watch this movie 30 years from now and still be impressed. And I get that. That's fine. But on the flip side, the way they introduced this plot device of having the music be uh, only one person brought music with them is not... It, 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 it doesn't work for me. And the reason why it doesn't work for me is because it's simply not believable, even within the context of the situation we find ourselves in for the movie. And I think that there could have been a wider array of musical choices and i think that even the musical choices from the era that are used could have been used a little bit better so now we come to the score i (laughs) i can't i still can't decide um you know what i'm just gonna go ahead and give it the benefit of the doubt because i was going between 4.75 based on that pretty major nitpick of the music
0: but here's the thing though whenever you look back on it or whenever you, your idea of looking back on a five-star movie, do you want to look back at a five-star movie with absolutely no complaints whatsoever? Or is having a nitpick, you know, or, or this type of,
1: well, I'm trying to just, the, the issue isn't the nitpick because there are going to be certain things that you could nitpick about any movie that you give a five-star movie to. Um, it's just, are you willing to let that nitpick Override the entire experience. And that's what's that's what's killing me right now. Is, is I, I'm I'm debating whether or not because I feel it's a legitimate nitpick, but I I cannot say for certain whether or not it detracts from the entire experience as a whole.
0: I don't know, Matt. It sounds like it absolutely ruined the movie for you.
1: Because I thought that Guardians of the Galaxy was a five-star movie. And I fully admit, even to this day, I still love it. And I still love it. And I watched it just a month ago with the fam and still enjoyed it just as much as I had watched it the first time. And it's still a five-star movie. It's not a perfect movie. And I'm willing, totally willing to grant that it's not a perfect movie. But I still love that movie. So, I yeah, I just... I'm doing it. I'm doing it we're going 5 stars. We're going 5 stars. Well, it, it. it won't
0: matter because the overall score will be 4.75. So <laughs> Um yes, uh my 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 overall score is 4.5, and I'm telling you this now because as I review this, it's going to come across as I'm going to I'm going to trash it with my rating. But it's not. Again, this is one of those movies that I wanted it to be perfect. And it's a movie that could have been, in my mind, could have been perfect, but there are some revealing uh, faults. Now, those faults aren't huge faults, as I'm going to give it a 4.5 out of 5, but also I could not have given it a 4.5. I think I easily could have given this a 4 or 4.25. But I landed on 4.5, and this is why. I really enjoyed the attention that was paid towards the detail and the texture of the film, but I felt like at least 25% of the movie was just trying way too hard to achieve universal acclaim. The movie works because of all the detail that was put into the look of the film and the characters and the science behind his survivability. They gave Matt Damon's character, which his name is Mark Watney, the believability and all the scientific skill for the audience not to question his every move in the many life-threatening decisions that he's forced to make throughout the film. In addition to the on-screen believability of the tasks and the constant restrictions that Watney must face, the screenwriters gave him a personality. This benefits both the audience and the character. With many of these Strain it alone in a remote area survival type of movies, you often have a character that doesn't talk much and is in a serious disadvantage. Unless it's beyond stellar, unless the movie itself is beyond stellar, and there's a brilliant visionary behind the camera. It's hard to get the general public, though, to fully commit to such a movie where somebody doesn't really have any lines. But Mark Watney's wit and the line delivery makes for a more entertaining film that stresses the fact that if you fall, you must try again and again and again without neither losing hope nor your mind. However, this is where one aspect of the trying too hard comes into play. Though I appreciate what they were trying to do with the character, much of the humor felt forced and not genuine. The same can be said for the overall feel of the movie itself. It feels much lighter than it should be. And basically, like Matt, I just think there were one too many 70s disco music montages. And that is why I give this movie a 4.5 out of 5. It's still really good, but it just felt like it was reaching for everybody's approval. And afraid to make risky choices and make the movie a little heavier and I think that would have made it a stellar movie but 4.5 out of 5 obviously still not bad whatsoever
1: Can I ask you something? Certainly Who gives that fuck what you think? Welcome to Wonderland Alice Got <laughs> your nose How sweet Dark no. Freddy Krueger is every girl's dream and every girl's nightmare I'm gonna have nightmares, oh no, oh no Freddy is the ultimate nightmare Freddy's, Freddy's way different. sociable, he's Freddy. a party animal Freddy rocks it's like Freddy's, he's like addicting And you, you know it gets better and better, each one The
0: scariest movie I've ever seen in a long time I, I don't think I'll sleep tonight
1: Elm Street, USA Nice homes, nice cars And nice kids Only problem is, these nice kids are terrified by not so nice dreams. This is it, Jennifer. Your big
0: break in TV. What the frying time, bitch? Please, God.
1: This is God. We move back into our Nightmare on Elm Street. Delving into Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, I, I am going to try and be a, a little bit nicer this week. I was re-listening to the show, and while I feel that most of my complaints were valid, um, I, I am—I—I I think I may have been a touch too hard, even on the ones... Uh, I, I, well, maybe not on, maybe not on the, maybe not on three. Definitely not on three. Might have been a little harder on one than I needed to be. Um, so I'm, I'm going to try and be a little nicer this time. around. So we're starting with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Dream Master. And this is, of course, a sequel to Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. And it kind of picks up. This is kind of the first time uh, that they actually tried to, pick up where they left off, more or less. Except they had to recast <clears throat> the role of Kristen, formerly played by um oh good lord. Patricia Patricia Arquette. Arquette. There yes, thank you. And is now been and is now recast uh by this young lady named Tuesday Night. With a K. Did you like how I threw that in there, guys? And Legit with a K K N I G H T. Anyway, so the thing is, is that while I could appreciate the direction that Dream Warriors went in, when Dream Master comes into play, you really kind of start to see the futility. Of having dream powers, at this point, like I could kind of buy into the fact that only at a certain point could could the coming together of the warriors be enough to counteract. But you, they kill them off; they kill all three of them off, the survivors off, in like the first twelve and a half minutes of the movie. And not only do you see the futility of having dream powers, which kind of Negates the rest of the movie, you also kind of see just exactly some of the holes in the acting that were present in dream warriors and i i mean i really I really 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 tried I wanted to be nice about it, but the kid who plays Kincaid just seems to kind of have one mode and it's Fuck all you motherfuckers. Fuck, fuck, fuck. And I he needs to have more than one speed. Um Joey kinda talks now, and he should probably stop. And Tuesday night was um an an okay replacement, but seeing as how they lead off with her, it was kind of confusing. Like I didn't understand she was a replacement. <laughs> <clears throat> And then, we, then then, once everybody's dead from the, from the previous movie, now we can kind of shift gears and, and get into the actual meat of this film, which is this young lady uh, who is Alice, played by Lisa Wilcox. And she's kind of this underwhelming girl who daydreams a lot, but seems to be able to affect herself within her daydreams. And foreshadowing. And then she's got friends, and basically Alice, uh, Alice receives Kristen's power of being able to call people into her dreams. And that's how we now have the link from the previous three movies into this movie and caring for it. Um, There are some really... this This movie has my second favorite... My my second and third favorite deaths in the dream world of all of the movies. I am currently not on. Uh, let's see. I mean, we okay of all of the movies thus far. To be fair to the reviews going forward. My first favorite so far is the girl who got her head pulled into the TV. In Dream Warriors, that's just I mean that's like the quintessential Freddy death. Number two here is asthma girl and then number three is debbie who's afraid of roaches so you can imagine how much fun they have with that i'm trying to limit ah fuck it we've had this this movie's been around for too long she gets turned into a roach and it's pretty fucking cool um but even as Alice absorbs powers and starts to become the dream master, she doesn't really exhibit... All these powers do nothing but exhibit the futility of having the powers. And so then, when, all of, when everything kind of comes into finality and they figure out a way to kill off Freddy, theoretically permanently... I I I'm just I'm just at this point in the series I'm having trouble buying it. It's not that it's not that Freddy's gift is that he keeps coming back because he only exists in the world of dreams even though he tries to come into reality every now and then. It's that if you're going to have an exercise in futility, you've really got to disguise a futility and this movie doesn't do that. But I've got to say that despite the fact that this movie has these flaws, Freddy, for the most part, is still pretty much on point. And I really enjoyed watching Freddie. I thought that the acting of the acting surrounding of, um, most of Alice's friends and Alice herself um, was at least decent. And I thought that uh, certain aspects, of, like especially when there's a partial dream sequence that takes place in a movie theater, there were some really cool things that were done in that regard. So I'm going to give this one 3.5. It's a pretty solid entry, but it's got some pretty major flaws. What do you got there, Tim?
0: Wow, 3.5.
1: Was not expecting that, so that's cool. It's really on the strengths. It's really, 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 really on the strengths of the Freddy Deaths.
0: Yeah, th- they were definitely entertaining.
1: So, yeah, yeah. but anyways. Oh, I you. Gotcha. Go Sorry, I didn't mean to cut there, you off.
0: Very good. So, if you didn't think that the series hadn't gone off the rails and steered clear of the Freddy mythos already, here's the second batch, or volume two, of the Freddy flicks. And uh, Dream Master kicks off our volume two of uh, these three movies or which are these three movies this is where the films begins to sacrifice creative story driven ideas and terrifying scares for a vat of pop culture references and self parody where dream warriors proved to be a creatively successful detour for the franchise Rinnie Harlan, who is the director of dreammaster takes another franchise detour from the detour without creating anything really compelling or adding any meat to the Freddy mythos. Instead, Harlan gave us an MTV version of Freddy, which he wanted to make Freddy out to be some sort of superhero. This was achieved by completely going against the grain of the Elm Street norm. As a result, Dream Master not only became the most successful Independent film of the time, which it grossed $50 million at the domestic box office. But it launched rennie Harlan's career straight into the A-list with big budget Hollywood films such as Cliffhanger and Die Hard 2, and it jettisoned the Freddy Krueger character into pop culture stardom. Uh yeah, after this movie, you saw him everywhere, in apparel, merchandise, toys. Kids were playing with him even though he was a child murderer. Kids are wearing Freddy Krueger outfits. It's kind of ironic. The movie does have some very interesting visuals and effects sequences. For example, like what Matt was talking about, Debbie turns into a cockroach. Also at the end of the movie, there's a great sequence where the souls of the murdered are coming out of Freddie. That's at the end of the movie. And then a really cool sequence that I actually really liked and surprised by was the loop sequence. When Alice runs out of the cafe and gets into the car, over and over and over again which is a pretty fantastic sequence and moment when you realize that something really odd is happening and it's very much like a dream so i really like that now it's nothing outstanding but when you're watching a movie like this it sticks out it definitely sticks out but it's absolutely obvious that the production of this movie was rushed And it's actually a common theme for the 4th, 5th, and 6th Freddy Krueger movies. All of them are rushed. And that the film was in the hands of an inexperienced filmmaker. Yes, Renny Harlan had some really cool ideas. But he had some awful ideas as well. For example, the beach scene with the shark Freddy and then Freddy wearing sunglasses. And it's difficult to fully praise aspects of this movie when something dumb and outrageous quickly happens. You can give props for at least showing Freddy coming back to life instead of him just suddenly appear. But he was brought back to life by way of a fire-pissing dog. (laughs) What? (laughs) Literally, it's a dog who pisses fire that raises... Freddy from his grave, pretty much. And also, Freddy's bones are dug up in a dream. Now, how does that make him come back to life if it's being dug up in a dream? So, stuff just really wasn't all that clear. But when it comes down to it, the glaring problems, literally, for example, every sprinkler in the cemetery is on during during a funeral scene. I, I, I don't know, I to me that felt like it was an accident other than a humorous moment, but I shit you not, it's a middle of a funeral scene and every single sprinkler is going on. But when it comes down to it, the glaring problems, the extreme randomness like the robot hand coming out of the desk or the high-pitched noise contraption which can conveniently shoot laser fire while it's in dreamland, and the dated hookiness like the super 80s feeling to the movie with all its 50s nostalgia and the kung fu obsession, all that distracted me from the visual elements and the unique perspective that Harlan apparently brought to the table. And that is why I give DreamMaster one point seven five out of five.
1: Wow, it's kind of—it's almost like a reverse of last one. I know it. It only gets better from there. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, here we go. Nightmare on Elm Street five. Dream Child. Th- this is from 1989. Now you gotta, you guys, you gotta understand. We have literally got six movies. Oh, I'm sorry, seven. A total, yeah, a total of six movies within seven years. They were just trying to cash in so much so fast. And this one, continuing the theme of taking, of picking up right where the previous leaves off, we, we're seeing, Allison dan are are now together and having a good time and dan apparently sneaks into alice's room at night you know so that's always fun um alice also apparently has to happens to have color changing hair because sometimes it's blonde now and then occasionally it shifts back to red like two distinct times it shifts back to red it's like guys hair color is not that difficult whatever um Basically, the gist here is: is Freddie is now trying to use Alice. Alice gets pregnant, and he's trying to use Alice's unborn child to fulfill his uh, to actually come back into the world in, for real. Um. So whatever. Okay, I guess if that's what we got to do, then that's what we got to do. Now, Wit Hertford plays young plays little old Jacob Johnson. And if you don't know, if you, when you look at this kid, you're gonna be like, "Man, that kid looks kind of familiar." He's that little shitty brat at the very, very, very beginning of Jurassic Park. Just you know, so you can kind of keep your pop culture filter going on for that time period. Um, really, I don't know. It's just. This movie, okay, I know Tim was was lamenting for as going off the rails, but this is where the movie just completely just loses its identity entirely. They're trying to add to the mythos. They're trying to uh, alter the mythos at the same time. They're adding to the mythos. They're also changing the way that Freddy looks, and they've they're like switching the eyes back out because the eyes were initially red and. Blue and then there was something else and blue. I don't, yeah, whatever. Um, the only coherent thing about this entire movie is that the, it, it is basically that Robert Englund is still Freddy. Outside of that, this movie, um, I don't know. There's just really nothing special about it. I can't say that it's a completely terrible movie. And I will say that there were certain themes that that they I thought pulled off pretty well when they were expanding the mythos. But I'm not really a big fan of how they worked in Freddy's mom back into this thing. I I really wish they would have left that. I really wish they would have left that part of it alone. Merely because it turns into such a key part of the ending that that it causes the ending to kind of fall flat. I was initially going to give this one a 3. Just because I was, again, trying to be nicer. But there's a reason this is the low point of the series. For a series that just, again, has not aged very well at all. So I can't give it the three that I was going to just be generous and nice and give it to this movie is at its best. Okay. So I'm backing it down. This, this one's 2.5 that there's a reason this thing went off the rails, but they, they had a few interesting ideas. 2.5. What do you got, Tim?
0: In, and yeah, this is definitely where the series goes full throttle off the rails and i I was saying that the yeah the the last one is kind of where you start you start feeling it you know the, the the train rattling off the track but yeah this is where it fully goes batshit crazy and that is why i actually almost liked it because of how how bad it actually is the original elm street flicks were geared towards Those that were in high school at the time, and by 1989, which is when The Dream Child came out, those kids are now in or out of college. Therefore, New Line wanted to introduce more mature themes within this installment, which is why teen pregnancy and abortion is now in the mix. Now, additionally, all the pop culture and commercialization regarding Freddy Krueger had gotten out of control, And the producers began to realize that the character in the series of movies had become more teen popcorn fodder than anything with real bite to it. So they decided to make Freddy scary again. That's what they decided that they wanted to do. Did they succeed? Not really. But I did enjoy this one more than Dream Master. But for all the wrong reasons. One being that besides the visuals... Nothing really worked. The film strayed too much away from the story's roots while trying to be something different and more mature. The production was even more frantic and rushed with incomplete scripts and scenes that weren't fully visualized when the cameras even started rolling. The final product is basically a patchwork quilt of hilarious Freddy Krueger quotes, such as Bon Appetit, bitch. In various entertaining visuals that are noteworthy because they were obviously masking the film's serious problems. One of the more revealing issues of the film is Freddy's return. You can't help but to ask yourself, is the way Freddy came back alive supposed to make sense? Because the only reasoning that you're given is, quote, he must have dreamt himself up. How can he dream if he's dead? And as what you'll notice in the Never Sleep Again documentary, if anybody out there decides to watch it, and you should, you definitely should, the filmmakers and even Robert England cease to come up with any more excuses for this film. But hey, how can you not find even a little bit of joy in laughing at a film with one of the worst opening credit scenes? The worst in the series, at least. Or the way out of left field Freddy Krueger quotes in a film where one noticeable improvement from the previous films, besides the visuals and the effects, is that they found a better sound for Freddy's claw screech. Oh, and you also have a killer Freddy rap during the end credits. So that is why I give this one 2.5 out of 5 as well, it makes for a great high movie to watch. You know, it's 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 entertaining for for it being bad.
1: So two point five out of five. Wow. Okay. Very good. So that leaves us with Freddy's Dead, the final nightmare. Now this was a uh, straight up comedy horror, and this was done to ostensibly end. The series. They were finally saying, you know, good night and good luck. Whatever. They even made sure to film the last 10-12 minutes of this movie in 3D <clears throat> using like a million-dollar camera and whatnot. Uh, they also got uh Billy Zane's older sister, Lisa Zane, to play a psychologist who turns out to be Freddie's daughter. Um yeah, I, you know, this one I have to say was definitely you knew going in that they were that they were purposely going to make it over the top. You knew going in that they were going to make it slasher so that it wasn't going to be quite as scary and they wanted for sure to send this thing off with a bang. And I and I got to say for me they achieved it. I really don't think they needed to throw in the gimmick of 3D at the end, because especially without the 3D, it's really just kind of stupid looking. Uh, and you can still even tell now uh, when they were going for the, the gimmickry of it. Um, but I liked how they actually went into Robert Englund being able to be freddy prior to becoming freddy krueger as it were i liked what they did with that angle and and it did make it legitimately creepy so i was i was definitely uh fond of that i thought the dream sequences were pretty interesting and i i liked the cameo by johnny depp um it was interesting, and I, and they touch on this in the Never, in the Never Sleep Again documentary. Uh, a lot of the dream kills were were subtext <laughs> of social commentary of the day, which I thought was also pretty clever of them as well. And I'm uh, you know I was down with it. I, I gotta say I was down with it. But as with the rest of the series, just didn't age very well, and I was glad that they were done. theoretically i was glad that they were done and so i like that from here on out we're kind of dealing with not so much rebirths per se well the 2010 is going to be a straight reboot but um but they're going to try and deal with different aspects of the culture that was created by nightmare on elm street as a whole so seeing as how they Had the foresight to say, this is it. We're not going to do any more of this main series thing at all. Fine. Uh, And they stuck with it to that end. 3.25. Sent it out with a bang. Funny, but just didn't age well. Go ahead, Tim. Really the one positive thing I can say about this
0: movie is that this is the better looking of the films in the series, I guess. Better looking as in it looks Professionally done, like they had a little bit more of a budget to put behind the movie to really go out with a bang. It's very 90s, which was kind of nice. You're not stuck in the 80s, 50s nostalgia vibe that was happening with pretty much all the other movies, other than maybe the first two. But it kind of looks like one of those 90s procedural dramas with the yellow, orangey colors. Uh, you had the drug addicted teens, and of course there's the social commentary galore. Uh, a lot of the movie pertained they talked a lot about cocaine and math and sleep deprivation caused by doing drugs. And, and one kid, Breckin Meyer, the actor Breckin Meyer, he's been in a few things, young guy in this one, he is doing drugs, and he gets sucked into a TV, and, and he's in a video game pretty much and god it's dumb it is (laughs) it is so dumb it doesn't make any sense and it is just not funny now with the other movie i gave the other one a, a fair rating because you can tell that they were trying to go for something that if they had the time if they had the budget and if they had the manpower there was a talented director and there were talented people behind the camera could have been i think a a good movie an even better movie but my god with this one it looked like they had the time it's one cohesive film it's 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 freddy krueger playing video games That is just, that stuff is what got me. Because to me, Freddy should never play video games. His character pretty much just went to shit when he started acknowledging pop culture as a cheap gimmick or joke for the audience. Uh, You know, he breaks the fourth wall throughout the entire movie. Every once in a while, it's okay if there's like a little wink to the camera or a little nod to the camera. But this was just a little too much yeah i in in the 3d effects it was just so gimmicky uh, it just wasn't good and it was obvious how gimmicky how gimmicky it was and even if you were watching it with 3d glasses in 3d which if you get the if you get the dvd version of it not the blu-ray but the dvd i read somewhere that actually comes with a 3d version of the film with 3d glasses with the red and green glasses so that might be worth it i don't know it just it, it aged poorly. And the last 15 20 minutes of the movie when the 3D kicks in doesn't really work. And wow the send off for Freddy was lame and I'm just so glad that Wes Craven stepped in and Robert Shea the producer of all these movies from New Line sat down and thought about something and I'm glad that something was let's give Freddy the proper goodbye uh, or or one last proper movie which would be Wes Craven's new nightmare. But, God, this movie is just not good. So I give this one a 1 out of 5. Uh, well, no, maybe not, maybe not a 1. I'll, I'll give it a 1.25 because I don't want to say that I absolutely hated it because there were moments of it, like the others, where it was like, God, what the hell are they doing, that it's entertaining? But it it, it just got sad. It just got sad. So I'll just stick with 1.25 out of 5.
1: There you go. I guess that leaves us with nothing else because the movies are now done. So next week, we are going to be wrapping up the entirety of everything Nightmare on Elm Street. We're going to be doing Wes Craven's New Nightmare. We're going to be doing Frey versus Jason and the Nightmare on Elm Street reboot from 2010. We'll also go ahead and close out the Never Sleep Again, the Elm Street Legacy documentary and give you our final thoughts on that. Uh, We are also going to go ahead and do the new movie that's out in theaters, Sicario. Uh, Tim has been anxiously awaiting this one, and so we are going to go over it and discuss. So those are the movies for next week, and if nothing else, I believe that brings us to the spiel. Does it not, sir? Spiel on, bitch! Oh... All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Crys of Solace. Uh, you can catch them on reverberation.com and Facebook.com, both, slash Krize of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at slscast.com. You can also send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter, at nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter, if that is your heart's desire, And, of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Jeff Daniels, I get to say this. I just never did buy this idea that you have to live in Los Angeles to be an actor. I didn't see that as a requirement in my job description. Take care, cinephiles. We'll talk to you again next week. Bitch.